In 2002, Robert Gagnon published what has now become a standard work on homosexuality in the Bible, titled The Bible and Homosexual Practice, Texts and Hermeneutics. This 500-page work is one excellent example of how biblical exegesis and academic diligence can be done with the aim of serving the pressing questions and dilemmas faced by the contemporary church. The questions surrounding homosexuality and what the church is called to do about it are just as pressing today as they were 10 years ago when this book was originally written. And so we put Dr. Robert Gagnon on the line to talk about some of these issues. Dr. Gagnon is a professor of New Testament at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. He has degrees from Dartmouth College, Harvard Divinity School, and Princeton Theological Seminary. Dr. Gagnon and I agree on many things, but we don't agree on everything. On the topic of men's and women's roles in the home and in the church, Dr. Gagnon tends to be more egalitarian in his broader convictions. I am a complementarian, and that means that he and I will very likely disagree on the particulars about headship and submission. But what we do agree is on this point. Nothing is more important than for a sinner to trust in Christ and through Christ to enter into the presence of God's pleasures forevermore. And we both agree that homosexual practice threatens this eternal joy. Or to put it another way, humans are embodied souls. There is an inseparable link between the trajectory of our souls for eternity and what we choose to do with our bodies today. In the early pages of his book, Dr. Gagnon gets to the bottom line when he writes, quote, If indeed homosexual behavior is sin and an obstacle to the fullness of life available in Christ— then the church has an obligation both to protect the church from the debilitating effects of sanctioned immorality and to protect the homosexual for whom more is at stake than the satisfaction of sensual impulses, end quote. Which reminds me of how Pastor John said it in one of his sermons, quote, God's judgment on homosexual and lesbian relationships is not because he is a killjoy, but because he is opposed to what kills joy, end quote. And as the Apostle Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 6, a life of unrepentant sexual sin will kill eternal joy. The topic of homosexuality is loaded with present and eternal consequences. In a later discussion, actually in episode four of the Authors on the Line podcast, I will talk to Dr. Gagnon about how pastors and churches can better care for those who struggle with homosexual temptations within the church. But in this first discussion, I want to talk with Dr. Gagnon about the role of the church within an increasingly vocal pro-homosexual culture. Is this a new phenomenon, and how different is our culture from the Greco-Roman culture of the Apostle Paul? But before we begin with either discussion, I ask Dr. Gagnon to begin constructively by describing for us the biblical principles behind what constitutes a truly God-honoring sexual union. What was God's original intent for human sexuality, and what are the biblical and structural prerequisites for a sexual union that magnifies God and honors his design as a creator? What we're looking at as the ideal is presented clearly by Jesus in his discussion of marriage in Mark 10, with a parallel in Matthew 19, when he's asked the question about divorce and remarriage. And it's set out in Genesis 1-2 that a man becomes joined to a woman, and the two become one flesh. And this verb that is used for joining is incidentally a verb that can be used both the, the Hebrew word behind it and the Greek translation of it in what we call the Septuagint can be used to refer to gluing things together. And in fact, uh, but we don't want to, here's where prepositions become important because you don't want to say that uh, you're stuck with your spouse. That doesn't sound too good, but rather you're stuck to them. And there is a way in which you are united in a way that's not only a union, but in the way that scripture presents it in Genesis, it's actually a reunion. 
because of the beautiful image, of course, in, in Genesis, we have a, an original human, which is called in Hebrew Adam, which we becomes a proper name, Adam, but initially is used just what it means. It, it refers to a human being, an undifferentiated human being. And, and then that generic term becomes a gender-specific term, ish, man, uh, when what is extracted from the Adam is then formed as woman. And the way the image is presented, usually, of course, we read from Genesis 2, we read the word rib, but I would argue, actually, the Hebrew word there is selah, and it occurs about roughly 35 times outside of the text in Genesis 2. What's interesting is, whenever it's used elsewhere, it always refers to the side of something. Once it's used to refer to the side of a hill, and all the other occurrences, it refers to the side of a piece of sacral architecture, either the Ark of the Covenant or the Solomonic Temple or the eschatological temple in Ezekiel. But we really don't know whether it's just a single rib or more likely, I think, based on also an Akkadian cognate here, this probably refers to some indeterminate portion of the side of the Adam. And we actually have some rabbinic texts that talk about it that say this should be read aside because you see how this is used elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible. And Philo will look at it, who is a first century Alexandrian Jew, and referred to men and women as sexual halves of each other. And so there's this broader image where you have this original undifferentiated human and some indeterminate portion is extracted from it, maybe just the side, could even be the whole side, and formed into a woman. So really what marriage is viewed as in Genesis 2 is a reconstitution of the original whole when a man and woman unite. What that means is, it's a beautiful way of illustrating that a man's sexual complement or counterpart is a woman and a woman a man. And in fact, that is also another term that's used in the context in Genesis 2, 21 to 24. We have this image of uh, creating for the Adam uh, a helper, as the text says, as his counterpart. And the Hebrew is konegdo, and from a, from a word uh, preposition neged, which means both corresponding to, meaning like, as a fellow human, and opposite, which is in terms of the sex or gender. So counterpart or complement is a beautiful rendering of that expression. So we have this beautiful image of a man and woman reuniting, in effect, to create a single sexual whole in which what is missing in the one is complemented through the union with a sexual other. And Ephesians also talks about the Genesis text and talks about how, um, you know, really this is becoming one flesh. It's all about learning to love another as oneself so that whatever you do to the other, what you do to your spouse, you do also to yourself. And no, no person ever hated themselves, so you, you do what is beneficial to the other. So marriage becomes this wonderful testing ground, if you will, of what it means to fulfill the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. So when one man and one woman are joined, they become one flesh. So on this basis, then, a number of sexual sins are excluded, including polygamy, incest, bestiality, and of course, homosexuality. From the biblical structural prerequisites for sexual union that you just described, explain for us what constitutes sexual sin in God's eyes. 
Apart from the issue that uh, a non-human species would be excluded, that is the prohibition of bestiality, and certainly this is a foundational presupposition of Jesus operating with the Genesis text. We're talking about human beings here. Apart from that, the real foundation here is this male-female differentiation. It's, it's that requirement, that prerequisite at the very beginning, which establishes a number of other standards for sexual relationships. Uh, it becomes a foundation of everything that follows. And that's why the only, the only differentiation that takes place at the very beginning in creation is the differentiation on the basis of sex or gender. Everything else follows from that. Think of two other elements here. Uh, the prohibition of incest. Why is incest wrong? Well, incest is a union of two persons who, or more who are too much structurally alike, alike in their embodied existence, here as regards uh, kinship likeness. Not enough otherness, and we see the problem come out, and if you attempt to procreate, there will be a higher incidence of birth defects, which is not the root problem, but it's a symptom of the root problem. Too much identity on the part of the participants here on the level of kinship. When we think about uh, incest, yes, incest is uh, a strong strongly pro prohibited in the biblical text. Yet, uh, we don't find a clear prohibition for incest in the Genesis narrative, creation narrative in Genesis 2-3. Because you have to start with Genesis 1-2, because you have to start with an initial set of human beings, incest prohibitions come only as the human race evolves. Uh, so we have some, uh, we don't have incest quite as clearly grounded in creation, uh, in fact, not at all, in, uh, except for intergenerational incest, uh, as a prohibition implied in the creation text. We do, of course, with an implicit prohibition of homosexual practices right there at the beginning because homosexual practice is a direct assault on a male-female requirement. We have um, some looseness about the prohibition of, of incest, certain, certain things that the patriarchs do in marriage is subsequently prohibited in Levitical incest law. So those loopholes uh, initially exist and then are retracted at a very early stage in Israel's history. Never are there any loopholes with regard to the issue of homosexual practice. That's more foundational. The incest prohibition is actually extrapolated from a prohibition of homosexual practice. The prohibition of homosexual practice is too much identity or likeness on the level of gender or sex, which then gets extrapolated to an incest prohibition. Jesus actually used a male-female requirement in sexual relations as a basis for extrapolating a prohibition of a revolving door of divorce and remarriage sort of his argument against any matter divorce, which was the dominant view promoted by the House of Hillel, a Pharisaic house, in the mid-first century, and would continue to be the dominant view in early Judaism. And Jesus said, look, that, that's not going to work. Here's why. Already a creation, God uh, decrees marriage as a union between a male and a female. Male and female, he made them, signing Genesis 1.27. And because of this, or for this reason, a man may become joined to a woman, and then the two become one flesh. And uh, Genesis 2.24, the only thing in common in those two verses is this. It takes a man or woman, male or female, to create a sexual bond consistent with God's will and creation. And it's from that that Jesus extrapolates the number two. He doesn't just pull the number two out of thin air, but rather he says, here's where I get the number two. I get the number two from the fact that God created us male and female. Two primary sexes, sexual counterparts or complements to each other. When they unite into a sexual bond, a third party becomes neither necessary nor desirable. 
simply because you've closed the sexual spectrum. There is no third sex. Even the so-called intersex that some people like to talk about, it's not really a third sex, as sometimes mislabeled, but it's simply an amalgam of the only two sexes that exist. Uh, these two primary sexes become, for Jesus, the basis for extrapolating a principle about the number of persons in a sexual union, whether at any one time, thus a prohibition, implicit prohibition of polygamy, uh, or serially, thus a prohibition of a revolving door of divorce or marriage for any matter. So what Jesus is saying is essentially, look, more foundational than even the question of monogamy, and uh, we could also add to that based on our earlier observation, more foundational even that there needed to be a certain amount of kinship otherness. You can't marry your sibling or your child or your parent. Um, beyond all that lies this foundation at its root of the creation, that it takes a male and female sexual counterparts to create a true holistic sexual union where you learn to integrate with somebody who is other than yourself. I'll throw out another topic into this discussion. Does Scripture give us any clues on the topic of gender reassignment surgery, this attempt to physically change one's gender? Certainly, Scripture does, not only because of the implications of the Genesis creation text. Uh, and, and you noted, remember we talked just previously about how this term used for often translated rib, but might better be rendered side, selah, uh, is used primarily for sacral architecture, that is the Ark of the Covenant or the Temple. And this has been noted even by the premier book on study of Hebrew uh, words in the Old Testament, Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament. The person who writes the entry for this in selah says, oh, there's, there's a connection there. And the connection is that human beings are essentially sacral architecture in their sexuality. Uh, so that it matters what they do sexually. The image of God that's been stamped on their being can be affected. It can either be enhanced or it can be marred uh, by inappropriate sexual behavior. And right at that foundation is the male-female differentiation and the honoring of the sex that God makes one. And we get this also coming out in Romans, where Paul uses the language of dishonoring as a way of describing the problem with homosexual practice. Where does the dishonoring come from? When we think about the, the logic of a heterosexual union, two halves unite to become a single sexual whole. What a male brings to the table sexually, so to speak, is what he is, essentially male. What he does not bring to the table is what he isn't, essentially female. And for a person to have sex with a member of the same sex implies that their sexual complement or counterpart is a person of the other sex rather than the person of the only other sex that exists. And that dishonors the integrity of their own maleness if male or femaleness if female and says that it's only half intact, not in relation to the other sex that exists, which of course is what God has done. God has affected in creating two sexes. But it's half intact in relation to one's own sex. And that is a self-dishonoring, Paul says, a self-degrading of what one is what one has been created to be by God. And we get this also coming out in the 1 Corinthians 6, 9 text, the vice list or the offender list that Paul puts forward. And one of the offenders he mentions is the malakoi, which literally renders from the Greek as the soft men. And it's used typically in the ancient world, especially in the sexual context, to refer to men who actively 
feminize their appearance all the way up to everything from a superficial issue of clothing to a more <laughs> critical dimension of castration uh, where they attempt to feminize, feminize themselves to attract male sex partners. And this is regarded as very offensive because, again, in line with what Paul is talking about, it's an even more radical dishonoring of the gender that one has been made by God. Just how pervasive was homosexuality in the Greco-Roman world that Paul lived in and in the world in which uh, we are reading about in the New Testament epistles? One could make the case. It's hard to get, uh, you know, it's you can't. It's hard to get any kind of firm statistics on the issue because we're we're just dealing with extant texts from the ancient world. But what can be gathered from that is, if anything, I would say the phenomenon of homosexuality is more widespread uh, in the mid-first century Greco-Roman milieu than it is today. Uh, and uh, there are some differences, of course, between the ancient milieu and ours, but there are also similar, a great deal of similarities, structural similarities between the two. And two misunderstandings uh, that tend to govern a lot of the debate on this issue, especially by those promoting what I would call a homosexualist position in the church and elsewhere, is to argue that, number one, they did not know in the ancient world anything about committed relatively equal age pairings between same-sex persons. And the second argument is they knew nothing akin to sexual orientation in antiquity. Both claims are false, as it turns out. For those who actually know the data, we can see a number of uh, examples, not only the conception um, of committed homosexual relationships exist in the ancient world, but those relationships themselves actually exist. And we have, we can document from Rome and from Alexandria, Egypt, and other places, uh, the existence of semi-official marriages between persons of the same sex. In fact, we actually have rabbinic texts which forbid the marriage of two men and forbid the marriage of two women. So obviously they're able to conceptualize a committed caring relationship between persons of the same sex in forbidding these actions. We have Clement of Alexandria, a uh, church father, from uh, the second century talking about how, uh, uh, third century rather, talking about how these marriages are going on in, in Alexandria between women. And he argues that these are unnatural, uh, even though they're marriages and they're obviously intended to be committed and loving. Uh, we can look at romance novels in antiquity, talking about romances between uh, caring, committed relationships between relatively equal age pairings of the same sex. So on and on we can go with the data here, and clearly they were aware of committed unions of that sort. And in fact, we even know of debates between proponents of man-male love and proponents of male-female love, where the argument is made by the former that the kind of relationships we're talking about between men are committed, loving, and caring, even more so than what you can produce for us in heterosexual relationships. And those on the other side who are arguing on behalf of the superiority of male-female love will concede that, yes, we know that there are caring, committed relationships on the homosexual side, but still it remains unnatural for the following reasons. So the notion that they, they had no conception of caring, committed homosexual relationships in the ancient world is some sort of piece now of new knowledge that we have that allows uh, something that Scripture, uh, we would argue, they would argue, never really spoke against, is simply empirically false. And the argument that they didn't know about sexual orientation and antiquity of any sort also runs up against the problem that we have lots of discussion in the ancient world 
about how it is that at least some forms of homosexual attraction arise. And the theories, there are multiple theories for this, but they include everything from um, something akin to what we would consider genes, uh, and uh, others talk about different sperm elements at conception contributing different proportions of male femaleness um, that can lead to a higher incidence of homosexual practice to early childhood socialization uh, leading to a nurture becomes nature kind of model. So all these things already existed, and scholars who know the data know this. So Paul in the early church were not naive about homosexuality. Exactly. They, they know about it. Uh, this, these thoughts are widespread in antiquity. We even know, for example, Philo of Alexandria, for again, the first century Jew, and uh, he's actually talking about Plato's Symposium at one point in one of his texts, where Plato's Symposium is one of those texts that promotes this vision of committed, caring love between persons of the same sex, and even gives a, uh, a sort of creation narrative in which that can work. And he says, yeah, I know about all this, Philo says, but the whole thing, it's, it's they misunderstand because these forms of relationship are natural because they involve persons who are conceiving of a sexual same as a sexual other. Moving up a few years in history, the, the Minnesota marriage amendment is a hot topic where I live right now, and it's on the ballot in this election cycle. This amendment would define marriage in the state constitution as being between one man and one woman. And throughout the city of Minneapolis, there are signs with the slogan, vote no, don't limit the freedom to marry. In voting yes to this amendment, are Christians, uh, is the church uh, guilty of socially oppressing the freedoms of the gay and lesbian community? And why or why not? Well, we would be socially oppressing the gay-lesbian community if we were advocating something that is harmful to gay-lesbian community. In fact, uh, it is those who are promoting homosexual practice that are advocating what is harmful. And this is on many different levels. It's, first of all, on the level on which God has made or structured us. Uh, this is part of Paul's argument in Romans 1, that it's not meant to be rocket science or brain surgery. I'll be a little anachronistic here in my analogies. Uh, to, to, to know that the true complement, sexual complement of a man is a woman and a woman a man. It's meant to be obvious. It's obvious anatomically. It's obviously physiologically. And even psychologically, it's somewhat obvious. So you have, you know, people doing uh, counseling sessions on the premise that men are from Mars and women are from Venus, obviously not literally, but understanding that men and women are just basically different in, the, in what they look at in a marriage relationship. And uh, very rarely will you find people in a marriage relationship who don't know that. Uh, that becomes clear very early on. This is not only a different person, but it's a different sexual person with very different expectations to some extent about what the relationship will be. And so, you know, it's part of our, the jokes that we have in society, but it's also actually part of what makes these marriages work well. Uh, not perfect. Yes, divorce rates are higher than they should be, et cetera, although they're not as high as some people have thought. Some recent studies indicated but still not what they should be, but, but certainly far better than what we've ever seen come down the pike in same-sex relationships, where what is the uh, norm for heterosexual unions is the aberration in the, heterosexual, in the homosexual unions and vice versa. Uh, and the reason for that is the beauty of a heterosexual relationship, a relationship between a man and a woman, is the extremes of a given sex are being moderated and the gaps in the sexual self are being filled. And what you don't have in a homosexual union is the extremes of a given sex are being exacerbated because you don't have a true sexual complement in the union. 
And the gaps that exist in maleness or in femaleness are not being filled because, again, a sexual complement is not part of the union. So you do get a disproportionately high rate of measurable harm that exists in those who engage in homosexual behavior. In men, you get a higher incidence of sexually transmitted infection, and you get much higher numbers of sex partners over the course of life, even when you're in committed unions, much higher rates of open union kind of situations, even relative to lesbianism. With regards to lesbian relationships, you have much greater monogamy, but you have less longevity in the relationship as a whole and higher incidences of uh, mental health problems associated with the relationship. So we see these, what we're arguing here is we see when we're saying we're not approving of these unions, we see reasons for that. We see disproportionately high rates of measurable harm coming from those who engage in this behavior. So why would we want to promote that? We also see a root dishonoring of one's own self, this sort of root harm behind these symptoms, where one doesn't actually recognize the integrity, the intactness of one's own sex as male or female. So why would we want to promote that? The same reason why we, it could not be argued that we are somehow hostile to people who might want to be in an, a loving, committed incestuous union. We're not being hostile to such persons. We're saying that entering into such union does not really honor the person that God has made you to be. Or entering into a union that involves three or more persons concurrently. Does that mean that we hate persons who have polyamorous impulses or instincts, sexual attractions for more than one person concurrently? No, we're saying rather that these attractions aren't really self-honoring. They're really self-degrading ultimately because God has created us in such a way with two sexes that really our sexual complement is found not in two other persons or three other persons concurrently, but only one other person concurrently. And, and so the same principle applies in all these three unions. So if they, they want to say that we hate persons who enter into gay-lesbian relationships by not giving them marriage. They have to go down the line and accept the same principle for not allowing marriage with three or more persons concurrently or close kin, kinship relationships as well. As this battle continues on, what advice do you have for churches who want to preach against the sin of homosexuality in the culture, but also want to make sure that the church doors are wide open and welcoming to all of those in the homosexual community who need the gospel? I think two ways in which we can do that. One is by emphasizing that sexual purity across the board, uh, not just the issue of homosexual practice. I don't want to say by saying that that I think that all sexual sin is equal. I don't think Scripture does think all sexual sin is equal. I think Scripture, for example, regards the sin of incest as worse than fornication. And you can see that in Paul's reaction in 1 Corinthians 5, how he deals with that. Both of them are wrong. Both of them are prohibited in the church. Neither of them should be allowed, and persons should be uh, exhorted to repent if engaged in either of them. But that doesn't mean everything is equal at all levels. But still, the church needs to do a better job of promoting sexual purity across the board than it currently is doing. And, and that means, you know, regularly be talking about sexual issues. When I look at when I look at Pauline text, letters that Paul wrote when he's operating in a Gentile context, unlike Jesus, who was operating in a Palestinian Jewish context and could pretty much assume certain sexual behaviors are not being regularly committed. Paul could not assume such a thing in a Gentile context, and nor can we assume such a thing in our current context either. And I see Paul regularly bringing up issues about sexual purity and the problems with sexual immorality, such that it becomes issue number two for Paul. After he's dealt with the issue of idolatry, 
Then immediately he deals with the issue of sexual purity. And that's always one, two in his vice list in either order. And that's what it has to be now for the church. We serve the one God, fully devoted to that one God. That's point number one, the God of Jesus Christ. And point number two, sexual purity. If we get to that point, then it's going to be less of a problem. Secondly, I think we have to also proclaim the reality that um, in some ways, while homosexual practice is its own unique offense, just as any other offense would be, in other respects, persons who are dealing with this issue are no different from other persons who have to struggle with sexual issues in their life. All of us, especially if men, I can say, I can speak for men at least as a man, uh, but also studies indicate this, uh, sexual issues are much more problematic for men generally than they are for women. The problems of fidelity, monogamy, especially in one's thought life. So all of us recognize that what we're doing here, our approach is not, you know, I can, you know, to, to major, major in the minors or to lord it over somebody else, but rather in the true way in which exhortation is viewed in Scripture as a coming alongside someone and and sharing with them what helps for them in leading a godly life and recognizing that in doing so that we're not saying that we are better than you, but rather that we are likewise all want to enter the kingdom of God together and so this is this is something that I'm trying to share with you that should be helpful that can be helpful for you as it has been helpful for my own life. So it's basically looking at a sort of a more holistic presentation about what love is. Now the interesting thing when Jesus singled out the love your neighbor as yourself command in Leviticus 19:18 as the second greatest commandment, most of the time we overlook that larger the context. And you don't really need a PhD to know that the context for Leviticus, the second half of Leviticus 19.18, where this commandment comes, is the preceding verse and a half, Leviticus 19.17 and 18a. Not too brilliant to say that, but we often overlook the context. And the context is you shall not hate your neighbor, you shall not uh, take revenge against your neighbor, you shall not hold a grudge against your neighbor. It's not really about you, it's about recovering somebody. And if if your neighbor does wrong, you shall reprove your neighbor, lest you incur guilt for failing to warn them, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If that was the larger approach that we took in the church, as, as, as reproof as a way of recovering somebody for the kingdom of God, somebody who is now lost is now found, then there might be a little bit different dynamic in that process than has been the case. That was Dr. Robert Gagnon from his office in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Dr. Gagnon is Associate Professor of New Testament at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, and he is the author of The Bible and Homosexual Practice, Texts and Hermeneutics, published in 2002. As a brief aside, at the beginning of this podcast, I mentioned that Dr. Gagnon and I disagree on some details, and that would hold true of what we discussed here, particularly on the idea that the original Adam in Genesis 2 was created as a binary or a sexually undifferentiated human, or to put this in other language, the idea that the original Adam was not male per se, but contained both maleness and femaleness until the femaleness was split off. Dr. Gagnon shared this view at the beginning of this interview. But in light of 1 Corinthians 11.8 and 1 Timothy 2.13, in Paul's discussions of male and female distinctions in the church, I think it would be better to affirm that Adam was in fact created male from the very beginning. In either case, we can agree that marriage is the one flesh reunion between one man and one woman, and thus foundational to understanding the sinfulness of homosexual practice. For more on this point, see the ESV Study Bible in the article on homosexuality in the section titled Biblical Ethics. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Authors on the Line podcast. This free podcast is supported, produced, and distributed by Desiring God in Minneapolis. You can subscribe and find a full archive of episodes by searching for Authors on the Line in iTunes. Or watch for new episodes online at desiringgod.org backslash blog. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. Thanks for listening.